you, you give us a hard time for being white and being American and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It's our God, Jesus Christ, has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back. Welcome back, folks. How y'all doing out there in podcast land? Oh my, here we go. Yes, season five out in full effect. Here we are. Can you believe it? Well, um, great first episode. I love some of the feedback that I've been getting, and uh, it's great to hear from folks. I mean, uh, you know, it's always, always good. So thank you for sending feedback. Big shout out. Shout, shout out. <laughs> wow. Big shout out to my boy Chase out in the Dinas in, uh, in uh, Cali. Uh, my man uh, had a great suggestion. He and I think we're going to incorporate that. Um, you know, last week I put out, you know, some, you know, trying to come up with some new ideas for the different seasons, and um, still not settled on a, you know, like a theme for this for this particular season. And uh, I just wanted to roll with it and you know start start you know putting out a podcast, you know, again because uh, you know, I mean, this it's good stuff. But uh, Chase had a great idea about answering questions. And so what I'm going to be doing is setting up. I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm going to have y'all set it up. I'm going to set it up on on the website, whiteodgepodcast.com. And I'll set up a question line where you can go to the website, dial in your uh, question and I'll answer them here. You know, and here's the thing. I want to put up a few things here. Um. I don't want to be the Bible answer guy. <laughs> Number one, um, I don't want to come at this from a paternalistic, you know, modernity, you know, realm where, uh, you know, hey, I can answer everything right from scripture. Uh, nah, 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 gee, uh, we, we ain't going to be doing that. I think the the engagement is is the interaction. And I think also we can ask guests some of these questions right um about that you have in regards to religion faith race gender intersectionality uh, intercultural competencies all those great things i think it'd be great and and or just comments uh so i'll set that up white arch podcast you just go there click on profane faith and at the top of the page there'll be a link uh to fill in you know to ask some questions and whatnot or if you just want to email me directly dan at whitehodge.com you can do that as well um, uh, or, you know, in any of the other social media outlets, Twitter minus, um, uh, and you can do that. So I think that'd be a great thing. I think that, I think that's a really, really great idea. Um, and it's a good way to just engage and just, you know, just have some virtual conversations in regards to, um, you know, this podcast and whatnot. And so I think that's a good way of, of getting going this, uh, you know, this, this season, season five, um, so yes, that'll be that. So White Arch Podcast, Profane Faith, click on that. And if you have questions, you have thoughts, 
you have just a comment or some uh, some thought that you want me to comment on you know the you know the way the, the you know one of the ways that i really stay in connection with news is just by other folks i mean uh one of my greatest outlets is just talking with students and they'll tell me stuff like hey did you hear this or did you hear this new album or did you hear this you got to check it out so that's just another way of just staying connected so check it out i'm excited about that and uh you know we can keep popping with that um well here we are moving into uh you know a new season uh here in chicago we've still not gotten any snow we've gotten some flurries but uh haven't really gotten any snow yet i see the the weather is changing around in a lot of different places for uh, for folks, I see snow up in the, you know, northern Twin Cities and, uh, of course, out, uh, folks that's fam out in uh, Denver. Uh, see y'all getting some snow as well. Um, so, yes, the seasons are changing. Here we are headed into uh, an interesting winter. Uh, at least at this point, at this stage in time, we have a surge in the coronavirus. <laughs> and so, um, I, you know... I, Here's the thing. I think uh, this is with the coronavirus. I think it's 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 fascinating to me because it you know it's it's turned into such this political thing, right? It's like there's people who think you know if you wear a mask, it's a political statement, which is like the the dumbest you know concept around, right? Um, I continually wear a mask. I think. You know, part of it is is that you know, as folks, we we get bored. I also think there's this uh, this sense of American exceptionalism that that exists uh, within, you know, just the ideological uh, imagination of the U.S. citizen, right? Like, I can do this, and I'm a, I'm a free right. I'm, I'm a free person. Don't tell me what to do. Um, I know I was watching Bill Maher on uh, Jimmy Kimmel one night, and. I'm not a big fan of Bill Maher to begin with. I, he, I think he's got a lot of things ass backwards. I think that he's he's, he's obviously gotten a platform and, uh, you know, to say stuff. But one of the things he was talking about was how it, the doctors of the U.S. were a bunch of cowards because they wouldn't say what the real problem was. And the real problem was that we have bad food, bad diet, and, uh, you know, our immune system is low. And that's one of the reasons why... Uh, COVID is spreading so fast and doctors don't want to admit that um, and that if, you know, we just had a better immune system, you know, we'd, we'd be better. Um, and that, you know, he wasn't afraid of uh, of COVID. And I'm just like, wow, spoken like a true elite, a true person that is uh, privileged. I mean, I just, in every single sense of the word, right? It's like white male, platform, rich, uh, you know, you probably have some of the best health insurance to begin with. And then, you know, to, from an armchair to yell at people that their diet isn't right and that they are somehow, uh, you know, you know, ill-informed and they, they don't, and the doctors aren't the ones telling them. I'm just like, well, we've, we're, and, and, and here's the thing. I will agree on the base point that yes, there's some crappy ass food at that's out there right now. Right. There is some, some 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 bad dietary habits yes but to sum it all down into that and i think that's that's part of the modern mind right it's like you know to summarize everything into one point if we can just get it into this smoking gun that's it that's the problem and you know that ties back into of course you know where we're at, at you know with the coronavirus it's like well you know some people think it's just fake and that it's been blown up by the liberal media and that you know 
the Chinese created it in a lab and that it's, you know, it's taking out, you know, different people. I mean, it's, it's, there's all the amazing stuff that's out there that's just, and when I say amazing, I mean just in, in craziness um, that exists. And, and it's just like, whoa, really? Oh my gosh. So, you know, here we are in the house. Uh, I was actually going to have my mom come out uh, after Thanksgiving at, set it up uh, you know i'm not using any of my miles uh <laughs> you know from my airline i haven't flown in you know probably well yeah aar was the last time i got in a plane last year 2019 um and so uh you know i was like well let me use my miles before they expire so i got was able to get my mom a ticket uh out from cali to here and um now i'm looking like we're gonna have to cancel that trip because there's just so much. And in the fact that, you know, while well, I was flying her through American and Americans, you know, they got new policies, right? Uh, you know, they're not uh, doing like straight flights. Like, you know, the flight from California to here is like, you know, five hours. Um, and so they're breaking that flight up. So the fact that she's going to be at three different airports having to switch planes, uh, you know, and yeah, I, I'm just like, Wow. And I know I get it. Some people are saying, oh, we got a new, uh, you know, vaccine coming out and everything. I mean, man, we're still far, long ways from where that's going to be. So here we are. Right. A new president. You know, even though the old president has not conceded and is now hiring a team of folks to find, quote unquote, voter fraud, uh, which, you know, they will. Right. That's already just, uh, you know, bias confirmation like a mofo there. Right. It's like we're going to go and hire this team. Of course, they're going to find stuff because that's been his whole plot, even though all kinds of different um uh, teams and groups of people have found that there is no voter fraud. In fact, this is one of the safest. In fact, I think it was New York Times and even Wall Street Journal, right? Uh, I have all reported that this is, you know, this uh, this new commission that came out. Uh, I think it was last week. They said that this was one of the most the safest voting uh, periods or the safest vote, or not safest, but um, excuse me, um, one of the least uh, um, times of voter fraud, you know, th that we've ever had. That this is one of the most protected ones that we've ever had and stuff. And so, um, yeah, here we continue to go down this plight. And I have some theories in regards to where we're at um, uh, societally. Um, I want to expand on those. Not today, because I want to get to our guest here, because uh, I'm sure y'all are, 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 are tired of hearing me. You want to get to Dr. Willie Jennings here. So uh, I have some theories. I want to expound on those a little bit more in regards to where we're at right now, uh, you know, Western society. And so I want to I want to um, chop some of those up with y'all. But I'll get to those because I do think there's some phenomena that is happening in regards to civilizations, in regards to the elite class. The working class, the bourgeois class, the, you know, the upper elite, the upper echelon and, and all the things that go into just being elite. What does that, you know, let's define what does that mean? Does elite mean you're educated? Does it mean you have money? Does it mean you are part of a certain class? Um, and how all those things are revolting right now. Uh, like I said, you know, even in last season, we've lost the baseline um, for truth. In fact, uh, we're in a dangerous position. Um, so, you know, don't want to go all dystopian on you, but, uh, just saying, just saying, just saying, um, all right. Well, y'all are here for the amazing Dr. Willie Jennings, Willie James Jennings. This, this brother's, 
is amazing. He's the Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity. Uh, his book, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, won the American Academy of Religion Award of Excellence in the Study of Religion in the, con in, in the Constructive Reflective Category uh, the year after it appeared. Uh, and uh, in 2015, the Meyer Award in Religion the largest prize for a theological work in North America. Uh, Dr. Jennings has also recently published a book that examines the problems of theological education within Western education. Now, this is the book that we're going to be talking about right now in the interview. He breaks some stuff down. That book is called After Whiteness, an Education in Belong. It's just put out by Erdman's uh, in 2020. Amazing book. We're going to be talking about that right now. Just the stories that he puts in there and particularly some of the, the problems with you know, how we look at the academy, how we look at structure, how we look at hierarchy, how we look at how someone gets an A. This is some powerful stuff. You need to check it out here. Uh, Jennings is now uh, working on a major monograph provisionally entitled Unfolding the World, Recasting a Christian Doctrine of Creation, as well as finishing a book of poetry entitled The Time of Possession. Um, Y'all know him. You love him. This brother, if you haven't read any of his material, this is your first time hearing, this is great. I'll put all the links to his uh, materials, whitehodgepodcast.com. And when you're there, drop me a line, some questions, some thoughts, um, and we'll put, you know, we'll air those. We'll put those here on the podcast. So without further ado, this is a great conversation I'm having with the great Dr. Willie James Jennings. Check it. Um, well, Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for taking the time out for coming on Profane Faith. Uh, thank you so much. Good to have you. My pleasure to be here. Um, well, I, one of the questions I ask, and I'm definitely very curious about this for you, is uh, I ask every guest is, you know, what has been going on from birth to now? How did Dr. Willie Jennings become the renowned scholar? I mean, it's like I hear people quoting you left and right, and rightfully so, but how did this person become in being what was what was what's where, where you been at brother man well listen i grew up i grew up the youngest of a large family i grew up to um i grew up uh in a home that was created by two people of the dirt my parents were sharecroppers in the south wow and um you know i, I was they had 11 babies total i was the last one i grew up in a house full of people and I grew up at my parents' kitchen table, and everything happened at the kitchen table, my dear brother. All right, yeah. all right. That's that's where that's where I learned of the faith. That's where I learned of what it meant to be black in America. Yeah. That's where, that's where every manner of human being that exists came through my house, man, sitting at that table. My my uh, my dad was a, a was a thinking man. Okay. He was a happy worker. As I said, he had picked cotton in the south, came north, but he was a thinking man. Okay. And he loved to talk to people. He loved to hear people um, spout their opinions about everything from religion to politics and everything in between. And he was an eclectic thinker. So he, he let you come in and say what you got to say. And, uh, <laughs> you know, folk, folks thought that they were going to convince him of their positions, whether it be theological positions, religious positions, political positions. And my dad was pretty clear about what he thought, but he just wanted to see a mind at work. And so hmm. he learned the joy of watching a mind at work. And my mother was... My mother was, a, as I said, closest thing to a saint you're going to ever meet. Serious, okay. serious Christian okay. woman who um, 
every Sunday, every Sunday, my brother would uh, visit everyone on the sick list. She and wow. her twin sister, and was um, pillars of the church. And so um, they allowed me to become a thinking Christian. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, be- I began my, my life as someone who everybody know, Willie Jennings is going to ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right. Pastor I grew up with, poor man, he just, he, I think he tried to love me, my dear brother, but he couldn't. Okay. I asked the man constant questions. And, you know, being a kid, I would always, you know, just say what I thought, which was to say, well, Pastor, what you said today just contradicts what you said last Sunday. And then I don't understand what you were saying about that text. Did you explain that to me? Of course, of course, of course you would. All right. I'll never forget one time he, he came up to my mom and said, Ms. Jennings, I'm sorry. I hit the table. I don't think your boy saved. <laughs> <laughs> of course. This is the salvation question. All right. My mother, my mother said, I think he's going to be all right. He's going to be all right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I, I questioned everything. Okay. I questioned everything. I questioned everything from deep inside my faith. I questioned it. And so I was not, I was not happy. I was one of these kids, never happy. Mm-hmm. Um, facile answers with superficial answers. And I was also a kid, you know, I was, um, I was a small kid, uh, the smallest in my family and um, was the kind of kid who got picked on a lot. And so I was always one who felt at the margins. Okay. And so to be a, to be uh, with a marginalized people and you yourself fill at the margins gives you a unique perspective from which to to think your loves, think your hates, think your questions, and uh, slowly start to piece together your answers. Wow. So that's where I, that's where I got my beginning. Wow, that's deep. I, and I remember, I, you know, as, I, as I've been reading your book, the, your latest, uh, After Whiteness, which I definitely want to get into here in a second, I noticed that you, that was one of the things you talked about, just being, you know, that smallest. And I, when what ended up deciding, I mean, like, for example, for myself, I, you know, I didn't go to college right after high school. Like, you know, I went out and worked. I was a general contractor. I didn't go back really until my mid-20s. And, you know, it was like, oh, wow, there's the whole field of education out here. Man, how did how did that go for you, man? And And ultimately... Why the PhD? Well, you know, I um, I was raised at a time when, uh, and not much different from today. I, I was raised at a time when you were, if you were a young black man, they didn't give you many options. Yeah, <laughs> option well. number one, option number one, you could try to go get a job in the in uh, the factory. And where I'm from, if you got a job in GM, you'd be all right because right. You know, back in those days, GM paid well. Yeah, the union was still strong, and so you 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 get paid well. Uh, but I, you know, I came out of school at a time of a slowdown. It's that 1979, man. Woo, mm. slowdown. And so getting getting in the factory job wasn't going to be that easy. And plus, my dad didn't really want me there. The other option was military. To go to the military. Yeah. But, you know, to be frank, I was just too, I had too many questions to say, yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That Can was, imagine. That was not that was not going to work for me because the minute somebody told me I had to do something and wouldn't explain it to me, I was going to be out. So I, I knew that wasn't going to work. And so the other option was you could try to learn a trade. And so okay. I actually tried to okay. start to learn. I want to, I, you know, my, my dad wanted me to be an electrician. Mm. So I started, started that trade. 
and um, you know, and had a bunch of odd jobs as I was trying to learn it. But I, you know, that was, really wasn't me. And so I was looking to escape. I was looking to escape these limited options, but I was also looking to escape Grand Rapids because Grand Rapids, I, I didn't have the words at the time. Mm-hmm. But where I grew up in Rambis, Michigan, you could feel the um, the constraint of being in a boxed-in black community, mm. and so many so many black folks feel this. Where you know that the options for living yes have yeah. been have been strangled, and I was feeling the suffocation of being there. And I said, I got to get out of here. And so, you know, in many ways. I turned towards school as a as an escape mechanism, but I was also I was also thinking about God, uh, trying to discern whether I was hearing a call, trying to discern whether God was real, and so my my moving into college was both a search and both a search for a way out, mm. and so and so both those things drove me and uh, backed me into. Yeah. Calvin College. And I stepped into a world I had no idea existed, even though I lived in deeply inside that immigrant Dutch immigrant world. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize, realize understand what I was inside of until I stepped in Calvin College. And then when I stepped into college, all of a sudden, things that had been uh, hidden right out in front of me in plain sight <laughs> were revealed to me. Wow. What were and what were some of those things? I'd be curious. I mean, especially you know going to a place like Calvin, and I know you ended up at, at Fuller as well, and and mm-hmm. and whatnot. But how? What were some of those things? And especially as it relates to race. I mean, you think about yeah, yeah, yeah. so many theological, well, journals, uh, commentaries, dictionaries, mm-hmm. expositor. Mm-hmm. I mean, have been written by white males. Um, and as we've come to know, I mean that that perspective gets embedded into a lot of that theological rigor. How did, how are you becoming aware or how did some of those things, how did you wrestle with some of those things? How did you fare, you know, engaging in, in some of those classrooms? Yeah, well, I, 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 I got exposed and I, and I saw so many things. Uh, the first thing I saw was what it was like to be inside immigrant vulnerability, immigrant mm. fear, immigrant angst. It was a, it was a Dutch school. Yeah, and um, I saw the other side of it. I saw what it was like to um, still be in the legacy, the legacy mm-hmm. of um, one's sadness hmm. uh, with with being, you know, in that that melancholy of being immigrant. Okay. And then I saw I saw an educational endeavor that that aimed to be Christian, but was also profoundly white and and the whiteness of it was invisible to it not okay. by accident but by purpose and i was i was you know because i was a, a learner and i loved um to think deeply you know just being exposed to thought was really exciting to me but from the very beginning i said man they're not seeing they're not seeing what they are inside of. They're not seeing the whiteness mm-hmm. that has been so woven to the Christianity that they can't see the difference. Those of us who are Christian but ain't white, we can see it. We can see that. Okay, well, you know, th- no, that's that's not 
about Jesus, that's about being white. <laughs> what you're saying right now, you know, that, that's a, that's about being white. And so, you know, so at, my dear brother, that that thing blew me away. Hmm. And then what would start to dawn on me as I was uh, moving through is um, the effect it was having on my faith. That um, that my faith was really formed in a struggle with this whiteness, mm-hmm. but I couldn't I couldn't really name it as the struggle at that point. But I was starting to sense it. Okay, this is what my parents have been talking about all those years at the kitchen table of what it's like to uh, deal with people who call themselves Christian but who but who are racist. And I was understanding now. Okay, this is actually the struggle of my faith here in this country. This what I'm inside of is a struggle. So all of that became clear to me as I was um, in college. And then I realized, you know, I, I, I loved, I loved the classroom. Yeah. And I loved yeah. the way it opened up possibilities of new ways of thinking and living. And so I said, let me, I'm, I'm going to stay into this. And mm-hmm. so I went on to my master's program and then the rest is history. But I, I knew at that point, that I, I captured some of the crucial questions that were going to um, be with me my entire my entire career, and um, the, the, those questions centered mm-hmm. in how Christianity has been so deeply woven into racial existence, and my trying to understand that has been the has been the crucial question guiding my work. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. And and how so one of the questions I was wanted to ask you, especially after reading your work and hearing your hearing your engagement, particularly with blackness, why and 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 I ask this out of a sincerity of a lot of the young brothers that I work with who are engaged with five percenters, Zulu, mm-hmm. or even, you know, the the rising number of, I would say, black Gnostics, atheists who say why would anyone want to be a part of a Christianity, right? Christianity that is, quote unquote, the white man's religion. I'd be curious to hear what your your take is on that. And, and you know, in, in particular with what is, you know, after 2016 election, we see the amount of white evangelicals voting for, you know, for Trump. I'd be curious to, to, to hear your response and take on that. If somebody was like, man, why, why would he, why, why Christianity? Well, you know, my dear brother, that's a... Brother Daniel, that's a great question. And here's the thing about I always say to folk, what we what we Christians um, are called to be that we often fail at is to be exquisite storytellers. Okay. Because we are supposed to understand what story we're inside of. You see, what I learned from my parents is that at that kitchen table, that I'm not the story I'm in first that I kind of got that guides my life, the compass of my life. That story is not America. Mm. And that story is it's not the American story. And that story is not the story of white Christianity. That story is of a faith ancient in its origins, um, expansive in its reality, and powerful beyond the ability of whiteness to control it. 
And so for so many brothers and sisters, they've never been introduced to the story of the faith. I mean, the story that they have been introduced to is the story of white slaveholding Christianity. Okay. And the ability to, to see and understand a Christianity that is much deeper, much wider than that has often not been given to them, afforded to them in terms of a reality within which to think themselves. And that's crucial. Hmm. The reality, because story is the reality within which you think yourself. Hmm. You think what you think, what you're up against, in which you think you think your resources you have. And so if you have a, a, a narrow story, then the reality within which you think yourself is going to inevitably mm-hmm. be smaller than you realize. So what does that mean? So I say to, to sisters and brothers that um, the Christian faith is a deep and wide story that has this at its very heart women and men and those who are trying to understand who they are learning how to follow where the spirit of God is guiding. Hmm. And that has been made possible by the very life of God embodied that God became flesh and brought questions. Here's the, here's the thing, uh, and we don't start like an evangelical and say, God brought the answer. <laughs> we, start, we start with the reality. No, God brought the question to the answers you already had thought you were inside of. Brought the question, do you know who you are? And wow. it's precisely that question that opens up the reality of life with God, right? Mm-hmm. The question. Now, here's the thing about it. What that means is that for so many sisters and brothers, because they don't have that wider story within which to understand the struggle and to understand the failures of white Christianity, they too quickly collapse Christianity into the tragic, raggly witness Mm -hmm. of Christianity wedded to whiteness. And so what does that mean? It means that often I meet sisters and brothers who have sworn off on Christianity and yet are gesturing by every fiber of their being toward a life of faith that they have not yet been able to find, toward a a spiritual depth of living that would anchor the vicissitudes of life Mm. that they have been unable to find. And why are they unable to find it is because in a fundamental way, they see or saw in Christianity a promise unfulfilled. Mm. And they're right to see it unfulfilled because given the realities of Christianity's deep binding to the problems of whiteness, the deep creation of the problems of whiteness, they couldn't see it. So my answer is, there is a reality to the faith that um, to deny oneself exploration into it is to deny something that is a part of the denial yeah. <laughs> of life yeah. that constitutes whiteness. Wow. 
what are what are some of the things as you've if you talk and I love this this new book because you there there is so much narrative in here and there's so much that you talk about at the beginning of the book how I've got I learned the secrets right <laughs> being at a place uh, but you know I can't share them but I can tell you the meanings and I like that it's like there's there's so many meanings what are some of the the distortions theologically that have come out of 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 whiteness because I feel like and especially with my listenership I have. A lot of, you know, quote unquote, ex-evangelicals, mm-hmm. whites who are kind of trying to figure out what what it means to be in their whiteness. What does it mean to, mm-hmm. you know, wrestling with this idea of uh, of of what does it mean to be ethnic? Right. I love the the I'm sure you've seen the, the, the old school documentary, The Color of Fear with like Victor Lewis and Lee oh. Manoir. And, you know, he you know, Victor Lewis, you know, talks about how we always deal with you. He's talking about whiteness. Like we always, you know, we, it's like. We always cater to that, right? So, how, how have you seen some of those distortions theologically? Um, and I would say, I mean, I'll, I'll put a cap on it. What, over the last forty years, because uh, I know it can it can keep going. But what have you seen in your in your role as an educator, um, especially being some of the schools you've been at? What are some of the distortions you see theologically in regards to you know the gospel, Christ? Yeah, yeah. So. The, 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 I would say there's, there's a fundamental distortion that we've been inside of for a long time. And by we, I mean um, Christians involved in education, all of theological education, whether we're talking about Christian colleges, whether we're talking about seminaries and divinity schools, um, Catholic or Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But, but also the we in this sentence is uh, Western education itself. Okay in Western education, going back to the reality of <clears throat> colonial colonial settlements, colonial relations, and the reality of the plantation, or the, or the hacienda, or the ecomida. All of these realities are, are inside this wider problem. And what is that? Um, it is an educational endeavor, from the very beginning, my brother, an educational endeavor that was shaped by one overarching formation goal, one overarching aspiration or formation. And that was to, to, to determine, to educate people and have them arrive at the educated state, someone who was a graduate, an educated state. And in that arrival, my dear brother, they would show forth the embodiment mm-hmm. of the white self-sufficient man who embodies three what I call demonic virtues. Mm. Um, Possession, control, Mm. and mastery. Now, now why would that be the overarching goal? And we we say in in education theory, the overarching pedagogical goal, the, the goal of it all, the formation goal. The reason is, is because Education growing in the West grew out of the colonial, not only matrix, but the colonial aspiration. What do I mean by that? It grew out of the realization of these masters that their children would soon have the responsibility of caring for all that I have and of expanding my holdings. And so here's the question they ask themselves. How must I form my children 
to carry on this responsibility. Mm. I must make them self-sufficient men who embody those virtues. Mm. And so what does that mean? That means that so much of the melancholy, so much of the pain, so much of the suffering, so much of the difficulty, so much of the frustration, so much of the exhaustion that exists in education from kindergarten <laughs> through mm. PhD wow. to full-chair professor, so much of the pain is driven by an educational reality that is geared toward that fundamental formation. So I have seen in my life in the academy, I've been in the academy all my adult life, I have seen so many people, my multitude, whose tears and whose anguish and whose pain stems from either failing to conform or be formed that way or who are struggling to live into that formation and who are giving all their life energy to becoming that man. Mm. Now, out of that, think of that as a massive oak tree. I hate to even use a tree as a metaphor. <laughs> it slanders the tree. But let me, let me just stick with that. Think of a massive oak tree with huge branches <clears throat> that, that extend up hundreds of feet and out hundreds of feet. And then you have a whole set of related problems that stem from that basic root. Mm -hmm. this, this is beautiful because I mean, in fact, I'm I'm looking at your book now. This is I mean, this is right at the beginning on page five. And the reason I use use the word distorted because I love the way you use it here. You said distorted formation has been with Western education for centuries, uh, and now we have entered a moment when we might begin to address it. Um, Theological education, as you noted here, you know, is, is changing. I mean, it's changing a lot. Um, COVID is only amplified um, uh, this environment. Um, yeah, I teach at a private Christian institution. And while our majority of, uh, you know, income, you know, because we're tuition-based, is undergraduate. So, you know, we've got the university side to rely on. The reality of it is that the seminary is still trying to scramble to figure out which way is up. As it relates to just race and these intersectionalities, I mean, how do you see theological education changing? And what I mean, what might the future hold? And especially now with COVID, right? It's like I read somebody's tweet online. They were saying like, you know, some of these cats' classes wasn't popping in person to begin with. So it's not like they're going to be, you know, that much better, you know, when they're online and stuff. So how have you seen some of those things? How have you been engaging? <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? So... <laughs> Here's the thing about it. The, the, everybody knows that there are some fundamental changes happening at, at two levels. Mm -hmm. One, mm -hmm. um, at the level of the financial modeling of um, how this whole thing works, whether we're talking about undergraduate institutions, seminaries, divinity schools, uh, Bible colleges, whatever we're talking about, the, the financial modeling is um, in great flux and review and change. Um, so the questions on the table, uh, can one make money <laughs> yeah. from this endeavor? Yeah. Or, and should one make money from this endeavor? Uh, we know that there was a time in which these matters 
churches pay for this. And so you, 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 weren't, you weren't thinking about money as you came to school. So, so you, at one level, you got that uh, turmoil. But as you just mentioned, the pandemic <clears throat> has added a second level of turmoil, which has to do with not only the content, but the delivery systems of mm-hmm. it all, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- there is that. But now here's the problem, and I noted this in the book. Um, neither one of those crises, and they're both crises, actually touch on this crisis, which underlies them both. That <laughs> is to say, you can, you, can, you can create a new financial model that'll work. You can create a new um, way of thinking content and delivery system that's far more coherent, cohesive, and aligns beautifully with a nice financial modeling and keep on pushing. But if you don't address the crisis of formation, as I'm calling it here, if you don't address what has been um, infecting theological education, Western education from its very beginning, the colonial moment, then <clears throat> another crisis is on us. And what is that? The crisis that this demographic shift is bringing. Mm-hmm. And that crisis is you have increasing numbers of people of color who are, who are the ones inhabiting the questions about theological the questions about God. Yeah. And that, that presence is going to only press this issue, put it on the table. Who are we trying to be in this formation? What are we trying to create? And here is where we have to recognize the legacies of pain we have inherited of people of color who have given themselves to the idea that whiteness and intellectual excellence are tied together. That um, becoming the self-sufficient man, whether you're a man or woman, that becoming the self-sufficient man with Mm -hmm. those three virtues is still the only proper game in town. And as long as that is in place, we will call down upon ourselves the pain, the frustration, the melancholy, the horror mm-hmm. that has always been a part of Western education. Just because you have a, a school full of people of color, if you have not addressed this, the person who will still be at the center of the endeavor mm-hmm. is the white self-sufficient man. So, so we have an incredible task ahead of us. And of course, what makes that task so profoundly difficult is that the white self-sufficient man is a Christian. <laughs> he has presented yeah. himself yeah. as a Christian. Yeah. And that, yeah. this, that becoming this is what God has called him to be. One who witness, gives witness of an educated state, a Christian educated state that shows possession, control, and mastery. That shows that one can stand toe to toe with those outside of Christianity who have also achieved this state. This is, this is what's plaguing us, my dear brother. And so the challenge for us is to rethink this at this crucial moment, mm-hmm. these these mm-hmm. crises give us an opportunity to actually start to, and, and especially given the 
given the uh, exposure of the racial violence that has always been a part of Black lives, and for some people to now, you know, be seeing it uh, much more honestly than they've been able to see it before, it gives us the opportunity to say, you know, we will not be able to move forward unless we address this crucial, this crucial matter of formation. Wow. I love that. I mean, because in all of that, I mean, I think that is, right, that's at our doorstep. And, you know, some schools, you know, because they're, I mean, they're closing. They haven't, you know, they've refused to, you know, to answer that. I mean, I think, I know where I'm currently at, they're wrestling with that, you know, right now. I think one of the stories that stood out a lot to me uh, was a story in Chapter 2, pages 54 mm-hmm. and on, uh, Mr. You. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, a Korean brother, in, you said in his early 40s at the time, working with, you know, English tutor, just the writing. I mean, this this one got me because I felt like when I entered the academy and when I say the academy, it's like when I, you know, started thinking about, oh, this is what I want to do as a profession and I want to, you know, this was, this was one of the comments that was told to me, right? It's like, eh, your writing is just not strong whatsoever. And I'm, you know, grew up, you know, speaking English. So... This one hit and uh, in, in, in home and mm-hmm. you know and you and you, you shared you know deeply about you know just some of the things here that was going on. Um, you said this particular professor, you know, you know, focused a lot on writing and that they just didn't want to even change with you know the changing classroom, which mm-hmm. is an ongoing you know issue. You said the professor and the doctoral student turned their frustration toward the student and destroyed what should have been a gift. Writing, thinking one's own thoughts with the thoughts of another. This was, however, the design of the man in the in my chair. Words have been won by serious, rigorous, and scholarly thinking, but even more words have been lost through the narrowing of what the those words mean and look like. And you even then you go on to say it's like you, it only takes one encounter with this man in my chair for a student to lose hope. And you kind of reference that about you know students uh, <laughs> doing time right. And I've I I've spoken to a lot of frustrated students of color right no matter where they're at it's like and that's what i hear from that one really resonated with me it's like i just i just need to get done i just need to get done i like i can't transfer i just i just need to just finish this and then i'm going to go on with life i'm probably going to go work something different but i just need to get done how have you wrestled with that what are some of the things that you're doing to kind of push forward i mean what's why yeah yeah (laughs) You gotta expose it, my dear brother. See, this is this is what has to be exposed. That's why I wrote the book. So, as as I said from the very beginning, I'm going to show you the meaning of the secrets. It's got to be exposed. What's what's exposed is the um, the uh, sadness and the desperation that joins that professor, that doctoral student, and the student they unleashed their sadness upon in mm. a vicious way. And what's got to be exposed is the inability of institutions to understand that if you unleash these ideas of rigor and discipline upon the bodies of students, especially students of color in this way, all you have done is unleash horror. Mm. And all you've done is steal from students the joy of learning right in the midst of learning. And um, and then start to start to um, 
exegete. Okay. <laughs> take apart, take apart these words like rigor, like discipline, like critique. Take apart the rituals of evaluation. Take apart um, the 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 work of writing. You know, some people have tried been trying in these last you know many decades to situate writing beyond these evaluative logics, but that's a real challenge. So the, the, the man who was, who was talking to me, he spoke five languages. Yeah, right. That's what you're saying. He spoke all these languages. And, you know, <laughs> and he was fooling all of them. And yet, in this moment, he had been reduced in his own mind mm. in the way he was talking to an imbecile. Yeah. In a Christian context. Well, we have to get our minds around that. These are Christians doing this. Yeah. This goes back to your early, yeah. com- your early comment. Like, well, some people are like, well, that's why I don't do it with Christianity. <laughs> Precisely <laughs> because of that. And, but, but, but the challenge is, the challenge is, is to get faculty and administrators to, uh, to see this. Mm-hmm. And then to sit together and say, ask the crucial question. Questions, if you will. Why Are we this way? If the answer is yes, why are we this way? Then once you answer that question, what must we do so that this never becomes the reality for our students? If the one student who says, I just have to get through here, is not a failure of the student, it's a failure of the institution. And we have to get institutions to see it as their failure. If a student has um, you know, come to your institution, mm-hmm. made the sacrifices to come, has made the sacrifice to go to class and, and to, to give themselves to this process. If they turn around and say, I just got to get, I just got to make it through here and get out of here. Then that has to be a, that's, that has to be like a fire alarm. Okay. We, what, what are we, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. Cause we cannot have students thinking this way about their school. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, and that was one of the questions that I had even at that at that point in juncture when people were like, "Oh man, you know, your writing is you know it's not great." But I'm like, "But that, that's what I'm in school for. If I if if I had to come to this thing already, then where do I go? That's what I thought I was paying to get an education to learn how to do some of these things." I love the image that you give on page 82 in chapter three. It says, "All theological education in the Western world is haunted by this illustration: a plantation at worship." And an enslaved preacher. I thought that was deep. What uh, what was going on, and what 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 prompted you to put that particular image and and that particular you know saying that goes with that? Because this is kind of connecting with what you're what you're what you've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's it, let, and let's work to that that illustration from what you just said, and that is, you know, you show up at a school, and you think that the school is supposed to receive um, your desire to grow and welcome it and celebrate it. So, oh, let's, let's work on your writing. You know, I think I think we got something. Let's work on your writing. Instead, um, you know, what often happens, and I've seen it in so many places, um, faculty, staff, you know, they shame students because the student has arrived to them without what they think the student should have gotten before. We don't have time to do all this remedial work. Now, of course, what we have, what we have to do is we have to take that apart. What is, what is behind that impatience and that frustration with 
doing what they call remedial work. Listen, I don't even call it, but let's just let's just use that term to, to, to yeah. put, see what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Well, what's behind that frustration? Well, what's behind that frustration is precisely what I talk about in chapter three, which is the the pedagogy of the plantation there. And that, that, and that, illustra- that image is so haunting. I'll tell you about where that image comes in a minute. But um, what's so haunting about that image is that it points to exactly what the plantation is aiming for. The master needs to prepare his son to take over for him. And so the master needs for his son to be educated in such a way that he is ready for him to fully form him Mm. to take over for him. So think about that in relationship to what was said to you or said to so many other students about their writing. The frustration is that you are not ready to step into master formation. Mm. You are not ready. I mean, we don't think you're supposed to be here in the first place, but the (laughs) fact that your writing isn't up to snuff just confirms for us that you are inappropriate to the place where we form the children of masters. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, no one's going to ever say I'm forming the child of masters. What they're going to say is what the inner logic of that. And what's the inner logic of that? I'm forming a self-sufficient man, mm. even if it's a woman. Mm. Even uh, It doesn't have to be a, a white man, but I'm, so, I'm forming a self-sufficient white man. And you need to get ready for that formation. So now that image in chapter three, man, I, that came to me. I mentioned in the chapter... Wheaton, Wheaton College invited me to come. They had found in the Billy Graham Museum archive, they had found a folder that had these images of black people drawn by, for the most part, white artists. Mm-hmm. And this was um, an image, it was in, from the London Times, but it, it wound up there. And they don't know how it wound up there. So they put it together in a book, but they also had a, they wanted me to become a lecturer. On it, and so they sent me copies of it. And when I saw that, it, I dropped it to the floor, man. Mm. Like, Whoa. <laughs> it just hit me. I yeah. mean, it hit me. You know, I've seen images similar, but not not that stark. Not that stark. Mm-hmm. This is a chapel plantation in South Carolina. The illustrator was there drawing it. And, you know, as those as illustrators in those days did, they, they drew it true to form. That is, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, um, the... the um, Got the term, but it's it's like a, you know considered like an early uh, early uh, picture, early photography, and so they draw this picture, and I could not I could not get my eyes off the master or his family. I mean, they are at the very center of the picture. Nor could I get my eyes off the slaves looking at him. And then after that, I mean, you you, you notice those first, and then your eye turns to that preacher standing there inside mm-hmm. the logic mm-hmm. of the plantation inside the educational work of the plantation inside the captivity that is life the christian life of that plantation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so when you when you meditate on that picture for a while you, you you realize this is this is it this is exactly what we have to understand now here i'm trying to open it up and talk about institutional life yeah, and yeah. how all institutional life, especially educational institutional life, especially church life, is haunted 
by that image, man. That's deep. I it, it is absolutely. I mean, I think uh, I I know in the book I put out a few years ago, Homeland Insecurity, I was talking a little bit just about some of the history. I talked, you know, the argument I was making was like, you know, racism was it has been embedded in the the theological DNA, and so some of these images that you write that stand out um, and show right the 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 embedded nature of what that looks like. Fast forward, because we know all this stuff is is connected. You know, we've got uh, as 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 I'm sure you know. You know, after you know Barack Obama was elected in 2008, you know, um, and you know his, you know, when he was inaugurated, you know, literally the day, uh, the evening of that, you know, a Republican GOP contingency of who's who met and in, uh, in Washington D.C. to plan out, like, you know, how do we undo this? And so. You know, uh, from that, obviously 2012 failed for them, but, you know, 2016 was a sure win. And now we have a lot of mess. You know, today we're recording this on 11-2-2020. Tomorrow is the the, uh, the the nationwide election. What are your, some of your thoughts on this this era that we find ourselves in related to theological education? I know for myself, I'll speak for myself here having dedicated so much of my life to trying to help particularly white spaces learn more intercultural competencies and learn more about race and racism. 2016 came and I felt like a just a huge punch in the gut with a followed by a slap in the back of the head. Um, and here we are in 2020 and I feel like we've lost a baseline for what is truth, what is fact, um, mm-hmm. and you know, this relativism that exists well beyond theological boundaries that says, you know, Hey, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And so I want to believe QAnon, or I want to believe that, you know, the president is being set up. How do you navigate some of these conversations, especially being in a school, right. And, and having students, uh, engage in this, man, what are, and, and, and with that, just some of the thoughts, I know that's a big loaded question, but I, I'd be curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I approach this moment, and let me th- let me say that uh, kind of three levels. The the first is the um, you know the kind of uh, historical level of what we're in. You know, the um, Republican Party has been for generations now playing inside the white, um, uh, really the white uh, infrastructure of uh, the American consciousness. They've been playing inside of that, uh, have been um, using all the tropes, using all the innuendos, using all the half stories, using all the code. Uh, they've been playing inside of it, having uh, taken it over from um, the, uh, uh, the Lincoln, um, the, um, the the Southern Democrats when they were playing inside of it. So it's always been a part of the political uh, landscape, but they have been playing deeply inside of it. And what we see, what we've seen in these last few years is the um, real fruition of that playing that they have, I mean, they, in a sense, they call it, they conjured up Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) And they, you know, he has been conjured up. He he is the avatar for that plane. Yeah. And he plays yeah. he plays it as well as um, any anyone has ever played it. And so we're watching that reality. And so for so many people, it's a shock, 
But for those of us who understand the racial infrastructure of the Western world, and especially of America, that none of this is a shock. All of this makes sense. Every last bit of it. None of this is new. It's, it's always been here. But now, at this moment, it's, it's completely uncovered. I mean, it's like, um, it's like you, you know, you, you're watching a play that's happening, that's been happening for a long time, and then after a while, the curtain gets so frayed and so old that it's so thin that you can actually just see it going on behind the curtain, and now you can see it. So you have that at the historical, at the theological level, what, we, what, has, what has happened, and I think this is what discouraged so many people, what's happened is that we, we realize the shallowness with which so many white Christians have been thinking about race for these many decades. We all thought that there was a much deeper conversation going on with them than there actually was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was never as deep as we thought it was. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and, and the reason it wasn't as deep as we thought it was is because um, it the the critique, the work, the discussions have never penetrated into their whiteness. And so, even at this moment, even at this moment, my dear brother, if you ask many Christians. What is wrong with Trump? Tell us what's wrong with Trump theologically. What you're going to get is some version of he's not nice enough. Mm. You're going to get some version of and his policies are not kind enough. It's still going to be shallow. They still don't understand what this man is inside of and what he's what he's saying. And so at the theological level, there is incredible exhaustion so many sisters and brothers i know who've like what have i been doing for the last 25 years all these workshops all these prayer meetings all <laughs> these you know all this all these things i've been doing you know all this uh intercultural multicultural projects and i'm sitting up here arguing with people about the value of trump i'm arguing with folks who want to say well you know he's he's not all bad i mean what in the world so <laughs> at, right. at the theological level you have people who still don't understand. Then at another level, let's let's call this really kind of the existential level in terms of, as you mentioned earlier, for so many black folk, um, they feel a hopelessness mm-hmm. that um, it's hard to articulate, but it's a hopelessness in the possibilities of change. And I understand that. I understand that there's a sense of hopelessness in the possibility of change, but but here's a, but at, at one other level, part of the problem is, is that we have another level that we have to think through here, and that's at the level of um, the economy, that's at the level of um, geography, at the level of life together, um, because we have not understood how the economy and um, geography are built to sustain whiteness. We don't, we have never really understood. I mean, it's like it's like um, you uh, weeding your garden and all you do is just pull up the weeds at the top <laughs> and you've cleared it and it looks beautiful. You've cleared it. But underneath, the, underneath that first layer of dirt, it's just growing deeper. It's just growing deeper roots. In fact, it thanked you 
for clearing off the top. Now, right. Right. more sun, more rain, yep. more nutrients yep. can get straight to it. And now it's going to, it's going to deepen even more. It's going to go down even more deeply. And so when it comes up, it's going to look like it is absolutely impenetrable. And the reason is, is because you never really understood that the, the education you were inside of, that the way in which you talk about business and small business and entrepreneurship and, and having your own and, you know, all of these things are calibrated to whiteness. Mm. And because you haven't understood that, you, you thought the rhetoric, the progressive rhetoric was doing work that it was not doing. Right. <laughs> it wasn't doing the work you thought it was doing because you didn't understand that you were inside of a ongoing formation process that is not going to end until you understand it at its root and address it at its root. So, you know, we're in that moment. And so, you know, I, I even heard uh, our, our former president, Barack Obama, say, uh, you know, this was on Monday when he was doing this thing with LeBron James. He said, you know, when I got elected, people said, all right, Barack, all right, man, go do your thing. <laughs> and they just got, said, they just got to walk away. He said, go, go handle your business, Barack. <laughs> I was like, Barack, he said, no, that's, that's not how this works. <laughs> right. No, no, that's not how this works. But unfortunately, and I, you know, and I, I don't blame, I don't blame the, the, 20-somethings and the early 30-somethings for this. Uh, you know, it's a part of the reality of often the way those of us who teach have set them up to think that their rhetoric, their rhetoric is doing deeper political work. That their rhetoric is actually uh, pulling up and pulling out um, these, these realities that entrench whiteness. And uh, the challenge is, is to, at this moment, um, help people see together, for us to see together, what change of life must happen in order for us to address this. I mean, this is why, as so many people are saying today, the ecological crisis is deeply tied to the racial crisis. These things mm. are tied together. Mm. These, you know, the, 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 you know, as I've been trying to say, you know, the, the shape of communities, the shape of neighborhoods, the shape of real estate, the shape of the geography is deeply tied to the racial imagination. And until we get serious about addressing that, you know, we, we, this, it's like, again, pulling weeds up from the top. So we, we, we've, got to, we've got to go about doing that. And unfortunately, I do worry that, um, you know, I was telling my students this morning that I remember, you know, I asked them all how they're doing, as I ask my students every time I teach now, how are you doing? And they were talking about how much anxiety they feel today. And I said, I understand, I feel it too. But then I told them a story that, you know, when I was growing up, my mother, if she could, she, she would see on my face that I was feeling and had anxiety, I was feeling nervous. She would often come up to me, my dear brother, and she would put her hand, she, my mother had um, big hands from all those years of picking cotton. Mm. Big, mm. Her hands had gotten very strong. I mean, so she put her hand, she always put her hand, her forehand on my neck. Mm. And her hand, mm. and her, she could hold my whole back of my neck with her hand. Wow. <laughs> wow. That hand that had picked cotton for 
for years. And she would just stand there with her hand on my neck and she would just hum. She would just hum. Mm. She would hum some hymn and she wouldn't finish it. She'd just start to hum it, right? And then she looked me in my face, humming at him, and then she walked away. And I knew exactly what she was saying. She was saying to me, baby, I've been where you are, and I'm here right now. Mm. That's what she was saying to me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's deep. She would have people, she just she just put her, she put, and I would feel that hand that, and if you ever seen cotton. And you know how painful it is to pick cotton, and what it does to your hand. And she put that hand on my neck, my brother. That hand, that hand, (laughs) that hand, and and hum in my face, and then walk away. At that point, I said, "Okay, I understand who I am. I am that woman's son." Hmm. Wow, that's powerful. I, I have no. I have no excuse to allow my anxiety to overwhelm me because I am that woman's son. Mm. That's powerful. I love that. Reminds me a lot of my grandmother too, you know, kind of raised in in just extraneous conditions. I always tell the story, you know, when I was a kid, I had to do a report on the uh the um what uh, the Great Depression. And I remember you know, going and asking her, like, you know, Grandma, what, you know, what was the Great Depression? Like, you lived through it. And she's like, it wasn't no different. I mean, shoot, people, people that look like us was always doing what we was doing. So. What you want to know? Right. What do you want to know? I didn't know what, what to write. <laughs> like, in third grade, I'm like, wait. Because the history books, right? I mean, that's just it. They're telling us it was all this horrible time. And she's just like, that was every day for us. I mean, you know, my grandmother knew the the bathroom as outside. It was the outhouse. This in, idea of indoor plumbing. And so it that's a great reminder, Doc. I appreciate that because I think it's easy to get swept up in the discourse of fear. Um, I mean, I, I've had to turn the news, my news feed off just because it it can get just be overwhelming. What? <sighs> How have you been able to handle? And I know our time is not. I don't want. I don't want to keep you because you you you've, you've dropped some nuggets today. This is this is amazing. Um, how have you a handled just some of the 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 anxiousness, especially with the generation now, right? That has grown up on connected to devices. I mean, I can still. I mean, I know I'm I'm younger than you, but I still remember a time when there was no Wi-Fi. It's like I would be outside playing with friends and on bikes and and whatnot. So there wasn't this kind of. I grew up, you know, on the kind of in the, the beginnings of this kind of era and connection to video games and media and whatnot. Um, how you know how do you how do you work with students, mentor and whatnot in this, you know, kind of tumultuous you know season that we find ourselves in. Well, you know, here's the thing about it. We, we shouldn't say to those who have, have been shaped inside, I mean, as my colleague called it, you know, the digital natives who live inside this world, we yeah. shouldn't say to them, cut off their devices. That, that's foolish. What we should say is, you know, you, are, you, live in this, and you live in these circulations. You live in the, you live in the currents. So what, what we want you to do is to learn how to swim in it and not drown in it. So how do you learn how to swim in it? What you got to do is, you know, they're smart. So, you know, and they have access to information. So 
circulate among yourself the stories. You know, um, the stories we have shared. What you have to commit yourselves to is an ethic of sharing. Share the stories. And when you sense in yourself individually or when a, you know, your, 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 your running partners, your posse is, is um, starting to, you know, reinforce the downward drag into the melancholy, you need to share the stories. Share stories, not just your own stories of folks, your own generation, but share, you know, reach back and let those stories circulate constantly among yourself. And for those who are Christian, you know, you, you, you add other stories too. <laughs> you add Daniel in the lion's den. Uh-huh. You, add, you add the other stories and you let them circulate. Let them speak a wider truth to you. Why? Because by letting those stories circulate, it reminds you of the wider story you are in. You are not in the American story alone. That's not, that's not, that's not the bottom story that you are in. You're in another story. And unfortunately, I think for so so many of our, especially our young folk, um, they really oftentimes function as though they don't, and many times the many, many don't know that they are that there's another story, a deeper story. Uh-huh. That there was a time and a world in which the God who created all became flesh and walked among us uh-huh. and spoke, spoke of that story. Uh-huh. And they lived that story, that story of Jesus. And you you, you got to remind them, <laughs> that's your story right there. That's the one. America comes later. <laughs> that's like, you know, that, that, that's months later. That's, that's not just... That's not the founding story. That's not where you anchor yourself in. Uh-huh. And so the vicissitudes of this political moment, which will be which will be linked to the vicissitudes of the prior political moments and the ones before that and the ones that will follow. That's the, that's not that's not what you are in. That's not the that's not the you know that's not the the deepest reality that uh-huh. you are in. You are in a deeper reality. So that's what has to happen, I think, for so many. But that being said, um, and, and as, as so many of our sisters and brothers who are engaged in the work of, of therapy would say, we, we do want to acknowledge the, the pain and the difficulty of this moment, especially for, for young folk, my dear brother. I mean, I can't imagine. I have a daughter who's 23, another daughter who's 20, 28. Uh-huh. I cannot imagine what it's like to be 20 something today. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that, man. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that you you went from your the first president of your social and political consciousness was Barack Obama. And that's kind of what that's what kind of centered your political and social thinking. And then all of a sudden you you get Donald Trump. I, mean, I can't imagine right. what it's like. Right. Right. <laughs> that's your you know, right. and I can't imagine. You know, and the reality that the kind of anxiety that has been built into um, our current society, I can't imagine being shaped in that. You and I, we have the we have the great honor and joy of being before the the the, the communicative power of social media and um, to to shape mood and manner to shape. Um, attitude and openness. I mean, we we were before that, but you know, 
these folk are inside of it, man. So I, I have great, great concern and empathy for what they are dealing with. And so we want, always want to do that. But my hope is that we can point them to a new possibility, a different possibility. I hear that. Beyond, yes. Beyond that, man. There's so much more. There's so much more. Even in the midst of pain, there's so much more. Mm. I, as, as, we, as I just mentioned, you know, my dear mother reminded me so much more, son. So wow. much more. Last question. What uh, what gives you hope in these times? What keeps you motivated? Um, self-care? Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, particularly folks who, you know, have pseudo-mentored me. I was always a little jealous of my, my, my good friend, you know, Brother Soon-Chan Ra, who got a chance to work with you directly, man. I... I had yearned for that during my own doctoral process, and uh, not that I'm I'm not dissing my committee. They they were great. It's just me. I got you, man. I got you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not dissing the committee. I'm with you. No, Listen, no. I, I, I was. Um, I I learned from my elders, uh, and in and if you've heard me ever talk about any of this, I always say the same thing. I learned from them a very long time ago. That hope is not a sentiment. Hope is not a feeling. Mm. Hope certainly isn't denial. Hope is a discipline. Whoa. Okay. Discipline. Discipline by hope. So, and what? And as they taught me, why are we disciplined by hope? Because the God who walked this journey with us said to us, "Have hope." Wow. So to follow that God who um, took hope to a cross, <laughs> you, you know, and on the other side of that cross, hope resurrected. Ah, that's that that is the key. Hope is a discipline. So I I live the discipline of hope. And the discipline of hope is calibrated not by the shifting sands of the political or the social, that that hope is calibrated by a God who got up, by a Jesus who overcame death. That's, that's, that's what gives me hope, man. And so what does that mean for me? It means that um, everybody I meet on this journey is an invitation to invite them and a joy to invite them to share in the discipline of hope that I am in and to gain from them um, what it means to have this as a shared project of life. I, hmm. I am disciplined by hope, man. I like that. That's that's beautiful, the discipline of hope. That's that's powerful. That, uh, as they say, will preach. <laughs> Dr. Jennings, <laughs> this has been great. You've been listening after Whiteness is the book, An Education in Belonging. It's published by Erdman's uh, Books. I will put all the links in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. As always, I highly recommend this book. It is a quick but in-depth read of just the complexity of being in theological education. We have barely scratched the surface, but thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where might folks find you to hear you more and to, to engage with you in that wonderful library? I, right now, I know people can only hear, but you're sitting by a, a, a very envious library that you're sitting. I was like, oh, man, these brothers. That's, that's what I'm like. That's what I aspire to be. <laughs> well, listen, man, I do not have a social 
media presence. But, you know, what you can do is uh, head on over. If people want to find out what's going on with me, head on over to the Yale Divinity School website and click on my name. And then there's, I always keep a list of the things I'm doing. Cool. Cool. And I will definitely put those in the show notes. And I really respect you for not having a social media presence. Um, I got kicked off of Twitter for talking to Lecrae too much. So I'm, I'm like, all right, you know what? This is probably a blessing rather than the curse. So I appreciate that stuff, Doc. Oh, mercy. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Doc. My pleasure, my brother. My pleasure.